Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Good morning to you, church. If you have a Bible, I invite you to join me in Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah 17 will be our text for today. We are in week three of a series called The Waiting Room. And uh, boy, isn't it difficult to wait in American culture, right? I told you at the beginning of this series, I think I'm kind of convinced that the, the besetting sin of the American public is impatience. And uh, in so many ways, we're conditioned by our culture to only desire things quicker and quicker. And, uh, you know, it used to be that you could obviously not go into the store and you could order something, but you'd have to wait at least 24 hours. Not anymore, right? With Amazon same-day delivery, right, Walmart pickup or, or delivery, whatever they go, there's so many different names, right, marketing names, and, and uh, there's ways that you can get what you want when you want it. And so when we talk about God's kingdom and waiting, um, it, it becomes a difficult lesson for us, not just to learn mentally, but to actually learn experientially. And so Jeremiah 17 is where we're going to go today. Welcome those that are streaming live. Again, just to reiterate, next Sunday morning, if you show up at 9 and 11, uh, just walk around the building and pray because nobody else will be here. Okay. It's online only next Sunday morning, but we will be here in person at 3 and 4.30. So good to see William Spencer and Riley Lang in the back. William not only finished college this week at KSU, but got engaged to Riley on Monday night. So that's awesome. Congratulations, guys. It's wonderful. It's excellent. Everybody ready to do a little work this morning? Amen. Jeremiah 17, if you want to and feel real spicy, put a marker in Isaiah 40 and then put a marker in Romans 8 if you feel festive and turning to three different spots. So we're going to start Jeremiah 17, okay? Isaiah 40 a little later in the message and then I'm going to finish my message today with Romans chapter 8. Today we're answering a very, very important question this weekend. Very important question. Before I ask the question, I want to provide a little context. Have you ever in your life been in a really difficult season before? You ever been in a difficult season before? All right. Have you ever been through a prolonged season of hurt before? You ever been in a prolonged season of hurt? One of the things, friends, that I've noticed with a good number of Christ followers is that when we go through difficult seasons, even though Jesus told us that there's going to be trouble and tribulation... He said, you will, not an option. You will experience tribulations and trials, but take heart, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Even though he told us to expect that, it's like we still don't expect it. It's it's difficult. It's challenging. And because we don't often expect difficulty when it arrives on our doorstep, if we're not careful, what I've learned is that people begin to question if God is good. And when we begin to question whether or not God is good, here's what we tend to do next. We ask the question, can I even trust God? Is God trustworthy? Can I trust God? The question I want to ask for our community this weekend is the question, can I trust God? Jeremiah 17, 7, as we're about to read, shows there's only two options related to your trust. Only two. I'm going to kind of read this passage backwards on purpose. And I'll show you why I'm going to read it backwards in just a moment. Start with me, verse 7. Jeremiah 17. But blessed are those. Everybody say blessed. Blessed are those. Makarios is a great, it's a fabulous word. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about it in a moment. Are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. 
Watch what the blessing of God looks like in the life of a person who puts their trust in God. You ready? They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat of the valley desert. This is crazy. Or worried by long months of drought. These people aren't worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they, who? Those who trust in God, never stop producing fruit. Now, pause. If I would have asked you four minutes ago before I started this message, how many of you want your life to look like that? That's what you want your life to look like. How many of you have said yes? Okay, I just told you how to get a life like that. You have to place your trust wholly in the Lord. No other way. No other way to get the fruit of that passage until one's life is fully trusting in the Lord. Listen, if you don't put your trust in the Lord, you have to put your trust in one of three other things. You have to put your trust in yourself, others, next slide, or your stuff. That's it. It's the only options you have in life. You either put your trust in the Lord, you put your trust in you, you put yourself in your trust in others, or you put your trust in your stuff. It's God or anything else. Now watch what happens in the life of a person who does not put their trust in God. I told you we read backwards. Look at verse 5. This is verse 5 and 6. This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who woke up this morning and said, you know what? I feel like being cursed today. That's what I want. I want to be cursed. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, including yourself. You do fall into the mere human category, and so do I. So this is not just mere humans outside of you. This is mere humans inside of you. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength, watch this, and turn their hearts away from the Lord. Isn't it fascinating that God says when someone doesn't put their trust in God and they put their trust in human strength, God connects it to their hearts turning away from Him. The number one way a heart goes away from God is when a heart goes toward self. It's when I start trusting in me, does my heart in the mind of God, the economy of God, equate to moving away from Him. Now watch God describe their life. Verse 6, they are like stunted shrubs in the desert of the valley with no hope for the future. They live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited, salty land. Now, if I would have asked you the question eight minutes ago, Who wants their life to look like that? Who would have raised their hand? Nobody. And yet so many people I talk to still choose not to completely trust God, even though God clearly outlines what life would look like if and when we choose not to do so. Can I trust God? Can you trust God? Truthfully, the question today really isn't can you. The question is, and it's the title of my message, will I trust God? That's the question. It's not can, it's will I trust God? And so my assignment today is to try to help you grow in your trust in God. Two things I want to give you today with a bunch of sub points. I hope you're ready to take notes. Here's point number one. If you're going to grow your trust in God, point number one, you need to grow your knowledge of God. If you're going to grow your trust in God in the waiting room, in the waiting season of life, You've got to grow your knowledge of who God is. Now listen to me. I didn't say grow what you think about God. 
I'm talking about growing your knowledge of God based on what God himself has said about God. Listen to me. Remember, I've told you, if I told you once a hundred times, if the God I know is not the God he is, then the God I make known will not be the God he wants to be known as. So it all starts with, do I really know the God that has revealed himself in the person of Jesus and in the Holy Scripture? So when I say if you want to grow in your trust of God, you got to grow in your knowledge of God, we're talking about the knowledge of what God has said about himself. The question we ask when we usually go through hard seasons typically isn't who is God. We typically ask where is God, don't we? When we go through a challenging time or a crisis, we say where is God? Because we essentially think it's part of us as, as Americans. We think if God is good and God were here, he would have not let this bad thing happen to me. And so what does it say about God? And what does it say about where God is? Because if God is really good and this bad thing happened to me, either that means that God isn't with me or God isn't good. And you see how the enemy just starts walking us through the conversation of doubt. And it usually happens late at night, early in the morning. And then all of a sudden our minds get all kind of entangled in this sense of doubt. But listen to me, listen to me. Really the open door for us was that we did not expect things to be difficult. So if I have a conversion to Christian faith that is easy believism, it actually might be more damaging than not actually having a conversion to faith at all. Because once I've come to Jesus under the understanding or assumption that somehow life will be tiptoeing through the tulips, I become very disillusioned when difficulty comes. So listen to me. I believe this. It's not really a trust thing. It's an expectation thing. But what I want to do today is I want to try and do this exercise together as we work through this. We start by asking the, the right question. And listen to me. The right question is not where is God when things are difficult for me? The right question to ask is who is God even when things are difficult for me? Years ago when Marley was still young, we didn't have a third child. We were living in an apartment where I had no office. Thank God I... The Lord provided a house where I have an office now, and that was a journey. Ooh, it was hard, especially, you know, 10 plus years of church ministry and local church ministry and having an office to go to. A stark reality, right? When you don't have an office. And so it was a lot of adjustment. And I never forget on Saturday, Saturdays are my long days of the week. And so I got up one Saturday and I was leaving. I used to come to the building, even though I don't have an office here, I'd come to the building to do sermon work and, and to kind of tie up my message. And I remember... I was uh, heading towards the door. This is in our apartment, and little Marley races towards me. And she was a little bit more latchy that week, and she saw me heading towards the door, and so she races after me. She says, Dad, where are you going? And I said, well, I have to go to the church. i got to go to the office. And she said, but why? And I said, well, because I have to get ready to preach tomorrow Sunday. She said, but why? And I said, because I have to preach. And she said, but why? And I said, because that's my job. I preach. I pastor people. And she said, but why? And I said, because I want to take care of you and Mom and Knox. And she was sad. Why? She was sad as I left the house because she was more focused on where I was than who she knows me to be. She's focused on the locale of her dad, not the character of her dad. For that little young mind, what is she thinking? It was actually a good thing that I was going to church that day to work. But in her mind, because the most important question for her was, where's dad? She was disappointed when she felt like dad was somewhere she didn't want him to be. The question, friends, isn't where is God when things are hard for me? The question is, who is God when things are hard for me? Here's another reason I've seen many believers lose their trust in God. It's due to their perspective of what God promised to do for them. 
Okay, this is an unmet expectation. Well, because God didn't do what I believe he said he would do, I can't trust him to do anything at all anymore. See, many of the promises we think God makes to us are about what he will do for us, when most of the promises of God of what he makes to us are about who he promises to be for us. I want to say that again. The majority of God's promises we interpret as what he'll do for us, when in reality, most of them are what he'll be for us. What in his character, in his nature, will he be in standing next to us? If you've been here for any amount of time, you know one of my favorite passages in Scripture is Exodus 33. Exodus 34 obviously comes next. It's a continuation of the holy moment between God and Moses on the mountain. I'm going to bring you up to speed on the part of the conversation. So Moses says, God, you keep telling me I'm going to the promised land across the Jordan River, but you're not telling me who's going to help me get the people there. And God says, well, how about I myself go with you, Moses? I'll give you rest and everything will go well for you. And Moses goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Time out, time out. There's actually a chance you might not go. Well, let's talk about this right now. I'm not going if you don't go, God. Yahweh, Elohim, if you don't go with me, I'm not going into the promised land. Don't ask me to leave this mountain if you're not going too. And friends, this is such an incredible moment between two best friends. And God says, okay, I'm going with you. Moses, is, Moses says, Craig's paraphrase, okay, well, if you're going to go with me, then prove it. If I have found favor in your sight, God, then prove it for me. Will you show me a side of yourself, your glorious presence that I, you've never shown me before? And quite honestly, can I tell you from my perspective, I think God was actually well pleased that Moses asked for this because God says, absolutely, but I cannot allow Moses one problem. I can't allow your eyes to see me because it'll kill you. So I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. You have to cover your eyes and then I'm going to pass by you. And in Exodus 34, I want you just for a moment, friends, just think with me. We're going to go somewhere today. Think about this for a moment. All of the things Moses could have asked God for in this moment. This is God's man. He's his best friend. He could have said, hey, when we get to the promised land, would you give me the biggest house in the land? He could have said, hey, when you give me the most chariots, hey, will you make sure I never lose a battle? He could have asked God for every, anything, but what does he ask God for? He asked God for more of God because that's what best friends do. Best friends don't want a trip apart from the person on the trip. They want communion. They want fellowship. I don't need more of that stuff. I've tried it, but I want you. I want more of you. Now, I want you to pause. Think about all of the things God could have said as his glorious presence passed by Moses in a way that it had never passed by before. Think about all the things God could have said to Moses. This is one of the biggest epitaphs repeated throughout Scripture. This is where God's going to reveal God's nature in, in, in so many ways in a powerful way. Now, I'm going to read to you what he actually says to Moses here. This is what God says about himself, proclaiming his own name in front of his friend. And there's six things, and we're going to walk through, or five things, we're going to walk through four of the five things, okay? Here it is. The Lord God descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. Who? The Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord's name. A Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is our God. When you are tempted to ask the question, where is God? Stop and ask yourself the question, who is God? Where he is doesn't matter nearly as much as who he said he is. And this is part of who he says he is. This passage, friends, right here is quoted more times throughout the rest of the scripture as an epitaph of God's nature and character. So let's walk quickly through who God is when times are difficult for you and me. Who is God in the waiting room? First of all, he's the God of all grace. 
He's the God of all grace. 1 Peter 5 and 10 tells us that. He's not just the God of grace. He's the God of all grace. Now, I know what grace is in terms of biblical theology. I know what that word is in Hebrew. I know what that word is in in Greek. But I just went to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary this week, and and, and I thought we were a nation that were trying to dismiss God. Somebody didn't let Merriam-Webster know. Because Merriam-Webster's first definition of grace is this. I looked it up. Grace is unmerited divine assistance. Divine? I thought we were trying to pretend like God doesn't exist in America. We got to go reconsult the dictionary. This is what Merriam says. Divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration or sanctification. Y'all, that sounds like a Bible commentary. That's Merriam-Webster. That's dictionary.com. Let me, let me explain or teach grace this way. Grace is giving me what I do not deserve. Give me what I do not deserve. I don't know if many of you know this or not. When I was in college, my first pastor uh, was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Hickson, Tennessee, more specifically. And God put it upon my heart as a junior in college to start uh, partnering with a, um, a ministry called Prison Prevention Ministry, Triple P. It's still in Chattanooga. It's actually a, global, I mean, a national uh, ministry. But I went down to Bonnie X Drive and spent my couple of weeks of training. And I never forget, we got a young man in our ministry. And I said, do you want to do it with me? And he said, yeah. And so we started Tuesday night going into the t- detention facility, the, the local jail there in the Hamilton County Jail. And um, as, it, as, as time took on, we got some training. I never forget the first time I went in, uh, they were going to put me in pod D. And in pod D, uh, there was a little hallway right outside the general area of the pod. And uh, when they they took me in, you know, you got to go through all the thing, like you're in a, you know, airport. And I go in and I walk into the pod and all the men, of course, are in their cells and they start beating and catcalling. And the the officer looks at me and says, they think that you're fresh uh, meat, that you are a a new officer and it's going to be really difficult at the beginning. Okay. And so I'm 19 years old. No, yeah, 19, maybe just turned 20. And he walks me into a back hallway, and of course it locks shut. And he says, hey, in just a moment, you'll hear a buzz sound, and all of the open doors for the pod for the cellmates will open, and then they can come down, anybody that wants to, and they can come into this hallway with you for Bible study. And I said, with me for Bible study or me and you for Bible study? Okay, <laughs> I, I, let's, let's get these things correct here. And then never forget, here I am, you know, sweaty palms, and he opened the door and went out, and a couple minutes passed, and I... They gave me just a couple little makeshift chairs, and I put them in a circle, and I heard the buzzer go off, and nine men walked into the room and walked into the hallway and sat down, and it began a a two-and-a-half-year relationship for me going every Tuesday. Some of the best, incredible moments. And boy, none of us could sing, but we still sang to Jesus, and we studied the Scripture together. i never forget this one particular man. I'll never forget him as long as I live. His name was Brian Goforth, young man who had... Real troubled past, very checkered as it relates to drug addiction, and then made some really bad decisions. And uh, I never forget him coming and telling the story one day. He said, life behind prison walls, it, it provides, you know, Pastor Craig, so many opportunities for me to trust God and extend his grace and love to others on a daily basis. And he said, I got to tell you what happened. There was a, a person in his pod that stole his battery-operated razor and a bag of coffee from his cell while he was at breakfast down in the common area. And he said it didn't take much identity work or, you know, detective work to identify the thief. It was easy. He said, to be honest with you, usually when things happen like this, I turn them over to God. And, of course, he was trying to faithfully serve the Lord. 
now. And he said, I always turn these situations and God's able to turn them for my good. But he said, this time, part of me wanted to give that thief what he deserved. He said, man, I just didn't want him to know. I wanted him to know that you can take something from me and it not cost him something. And he said, here's what I did. He said, I confronted the man and I told him I wanted my razor back and he denied taking it. He said, I didn't take your razor. And he said, I just stared at him and looked at him hard. I said, I knew he was lying and he knew I knew he was lying. And he said, in the midst of our stare down, I came to my senses and I did the smartest thing I knew to do, Pastor Craig. He said, I, I turned and I just walked away from the man. And he said, I realized I had a choice. I could either do things my way or I could do them God's way. And God's way is a way of grace and mercy and love, right? Talk about getting something for nothing, right? And he says, God's grace didn't cost me a thing, but, they, but it cost God everything. It cost him the life of his son. None of us deserve grace, mercy, or love. I sure don't. I deserve the opposite, but God gave it to me. It's a free gift. And so he said, Pastor Craig, I went back to the thief and I said, with all the power God gave me, I forgive you. I didn't take your coffee, he said. I never forget, Brian. He said, I didn't take your coffee. He said, I hadn't told him my coffee was stolen. And I knew instantly by his own admission. I didn't tell him the coffee was gone. I knew by his own admission he had stolen my coffee. And he looked at him and he said, I smiled and said, I forgive you. And he said, with those three words, I gave to him what God had given to me. Something for nothing. He said, it felt so good. He said, peace, because I didn't grow up like this, filled my heart. I felt all of the anger leave. He said, of course, I still wanted my razor and coffee back, but I knew God would replace everything I had lost. But I had to trust he was at work. He said, Pastor Craig, the following Sunday, I was at chapel when I noticed this man. He comes out of the pot. He's listening to the message. And when the invitation to know Christ was given, this man came forward and accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. His name was Geet. Never forget it. That's the man's name. He told him later in the dorm that his response came as a total surprise. He said, when, when I said those three words to him and looked him in the eyes as a man and said, I forgive you, he said he immediately felt shame and conviction for what he had done. And he said from that moment on, it was like he was being drawn to come to chapel on a Sunday morning. God's knocking on the door of his heart. And he looked at Brian and said, my life's been such a mess. I need Jesus to take over my life. Forgive me of my sin and change me. And then he said a tear ran down his cheek, streaming over the tattooed teardrop that's permanently on his cheek. He said, I gave him a brotherly hug. And to my amazement, I actually found myself thanking God for letting this man steal my razor and my coffee. It's God's grace. How many thousands of times thousands of times has the God of the universe extended grace to you as the God of all grace when you did not deserve it. Who is God when times are difficult for you? He's the God of all grace. We could stop right there, but that's not what God does. He keeps talking about himself in this passage. The next thing he said, he's the God of mercy. The God of mercy. 2 Corinthians 1 tells us he's the father of mercies. What's the definition of mercy? So I went back to Mary. Mary had done one for one, so let's go back to her. This is what she said. Mercy is compassion or forbearance shown especially to an offender or to one subject to one's power. Let me describe it this way for us. If grace is giving what we do not deserve, mercy is giving me what I do. is not giving me what I do deserve. I've told this story before, but I've probably never let you see it. I, I don't think I've let you see it. I was drawn to a story two years ago by a young teenage girl whose father 
Richard Houston died in action as a fallen officer in Mesquite, Texas, two years ago, almost to the day. This story kind of enthralled me because I got to see her stand up at her father's funeral and make confession or admission to the man who murdered her father in cold blood. She then later, I don't have time to show you both videos, then later goes and visits this man. Hami Hamilo is literally his name. And this man who had, again, in Mesquite, Texas, murdered her father, right? Three kids, beautiful father, faithful father, served on the force for 20-something years. She comes time for her to have the strength to get up at her father's funeral and express, of which this video then gets seen by Hami later on. We know this in the story. But I want you to watch what the God of all mercy does in the heart of a person who actually accepts his mercy. Let's watch this young girl. You know what that testimony did to Hami Hamarillo, right? You can go look at it on YouTube. He breaks, tremendously breaks, because she does get to go see him, and she does, he does have to face her in court as she talks about her father. How many thousands of times in your life has God done this? Showed you mercy. Just, just in case you're not getting a picture of this and how incredible this is, let's go a bit further. I think the problem with most people is not that they don't understand grace or mercy. It's that they don't understand what they do and don't deserve. So let's illustrate this. This is a little morbid. I hope not to trigger anybody, but I got to go to this link to really drive this point home. I want you to imagine you're a parent. Don't think about your children because it might get a little too serious for you, but just imagine hypothetically you're a parent. You have a child. You have one child. It's a son. And let's imagine that one day I break into your home and kill your son. I have a question for you. How would you handle it? Let me ask you an even more direct question. Would you give me what I don't deserve? And would you not give me what I do deserve? Now, some of you immediately would go into an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, Old Testament fire on me. And truthfully, I wouldn't blame you. But let me remind you something about yourself and about me. My sin killed his son. And I want to show you in Scripture to me, one of God's responses to me in killing his son. Ephesians chapter 2, it's the most breathtaking, amazing passage of verses. Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 5. But God who is rich in mercy, he's rich and not given us what we do deserve. Why? Because of his great love with which he loved us and loves us even when we were dead in trespasses. What was our biggest trespass? Our sin killed his son. Even in our sin killing his son, that God made us alive together with Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved. My sin killed his son, and here was his response. He didn't just forgive me and give me mercy. He gave me grace. And let me remind you, he said, not only do I forgive you, but I'm going to give you the inheritance of the very person you killed. No adequate way to really understand this grace and mercy. How can I trust God? How can you not trust a God with that kind of response to you killing his son? You say, how can I trust God? How could you not trust a God whose response is like that? I don't deserve any of that kind of treatment, and neither do you, but it gets even better than that. The next thing God says about himself is he says he's slow to anger. He's the God who's slow to anger. That's an amazing statement. One of Satan's favorite things to say, favorite lies to spin is this. Ooh, 
God is mad at you. Ooh, boy, he hates you right now. Ooh, God's angry with you right now. Yes, God has every right to be mad at me to the point of his worst, worst wrath, but he has chosen to be slow to anger with me. Let's illustrate this. Did you as a child ever break something when you were growing up that was very valuable to your mother? Anybody ever do that? You broke something very valuable. Maybe it was China. Maybe it was something her great-great-grandmother passed down to her. And you thought it'd be fun to play it like it was a football, right? And you picked it up and just destroyed it. You took her favorite piece of China from her great-great-grandmother. And you said, hey, mom, catch. And lid comes off midair and she tries to catch both pieces. And in doing so, catches neither piece. It goes to the ground and it's shattered. Now, question for you. When that happens, what's your immediate response? I'll tell you what mine is. Run. Why? I'm going to get out because I don't, I don't want to know what her immediate response is going to be. Let me say it this way. You ready? Typically, the more hurt someone's heart is, the more angry they are in their everyday behavior. I, I'll say it again. Typically, the more hurt a human heart is, the more angry that person is in everyday behavior. But this illustration here gets much, it gets, gets much worse right here. Because I need to remind you what God has said that you and I have broken, that he has every right to erupt in anger towards. You know what we broke? We didn't break God's china. We broke his heart. Let's look at it. Genesis 6 and 6. God looked at the state of things on the earth, and he noticed what it said. What does the text say? It broke his heart. It broke his heart. What does our sin do? It doesn't break God's china cabinet. It doesn't break God's heirloom. It breaks his heart. You were afraid when you broke your mother's most special piece of china. Can you imagine how afraid you should be after breaking the heart of the God of the universe? He has every right to stand over my bed every morning, and I wake up, and he should start his day off by screaming at me bloody murder for what I've done to him and his holiness. And yet he has never done that. Why? Because he is slow to anger by choice. That's his own choice to be slow to anger with me. How can I trust God? Friend, how how can you not trust the God who has every right to be angry with you, but chooses to be slow in anger towards you? Here's the next thing God says about himself. He says he is the faithful God. The faithful God. That's what God says to Moses. The presence, listen, of God's faithfulness is not proven in my lack of suffering or even in my lack of difficult seasons. The presence of God's faithfulness is proven in the midst of my suffering and even in my sin. Look at 1 Peter 4, 19. It says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God, watch this, God's will, they should entrust their souls to a faithful creator in suffering while continuing to do good. I don't deserve him and for him to be faithful to me, and neither do you. Let me illustrate couple years ago, I had two young adults in our ministry who were dating. And before they got married, the dude, bonehead decision, broke up with her twice. Absolute idiot move. It doesn't matter the reasons. He was just, would just say he was stupid. But by God's grace and mercy, she took him back. I just want you to imagine, ladies, being in love with someone and they leave you once and they come back to you. I'm so sorry. Will you take me back? She took him back. Six or seven months later, yeah, I think I'm going to leave. Two weeks later, come back. I think I want to spend forever with you. I want you to think just for a moment how you would have handled the situation. But before you get too judgmental, let me paint an even clearer picture, a much clearer picture about you. Do you know how many times you and I 
have gone to God and say, God, I want to be so close to you. I want to be forever with you. And then 10 minutes later, I step into an area of dark sin and turn my back on him. And then an hour later, I come groveling back saying, sorry, daddy, I'll never do it again. And two hours later, I do it again. I asked you how you would handle somebody leaving you two times. Now I want to ask you, how would you handle someone leaving you more than two million times? And that's what you and I do every time we sin. We do not deserve his faithfulness. And yet he says, Craig, I'm going on record using this holy moment with Moses to let you know something about me. I am the God who is faithful. Let me show you a verse in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 2 and 13 says, even if we are faithless, what does that mean? Even if we're completely absent of faithfulness to God, God remains faithful to us. Here's what, he, here's what I believe he's saying. I'm going to personalize it for you. Craig, I don't love you because of you, and I don't love you because of what you do. I love you because I love you. Please don't let that sound simple to you, because when I was in prayer this week and he gave me that word, I was undone. I love you because I love you. You talk about liberating. You don't love me. Because of what I do, it doesn't mean I'm going to stop doing it. I'm going to keep serving you in your kingdom, God. It just means it's going to be a whole lot easier to have a pure heart when I serve you, God. When you're asking me to do something, I'll do it with a pure heart because I'm not doing it to earn your love, and I'm not doing it to earn your affection, and you love me just because you love me. That is a perfect, perfectly eternal, faithful God, especially when we cheated on him millions of times. So number one, point one, if you want to grow your trust in God, you've got to grow your knowledge of God. Point number two, and my last point, you're going to grow your trust in God, you need to grow your all of God. In the waiting room, you got to grow your all of God. Listen to me. Do you know how hard it is to follow God when you aren't in all of God? It's hard. It's one of the reasons I love his transcendence. People think I love science, but really why I love science is probably because of the transcendent nature of God. Because his transcendence keeps me from bringing him down to my level. I can't do that. Transcendence causes him to be, we call it in theology, the aseity of God, the self-existing nature of God. He's way beyond my ability to grab hold of him and mar him and make him look like I want him to look like. But on the flip side of the coin, watch this. Do you know how easy it is to follow God when you're full of the all of God? Psalm 33 and verse 8. Notice what it says. Let all of the earth fear the Lord. All the inhabitants of the world stand in all of him. Okay, this brings in what we call the fear of the Lord. Just leave that up for a moment. Most people, when they hear the fear of the Lord, they think being scared of God. God does not want you to be scared of him. This is why he says God is love, 1 John. Here's what you need to know about love. Perfect love casts out fear. So God says, Craig, the last thing I want you doing is flinching when I draw near to you. My daughter, she's 11 now. It doesn't happen. This is Knox. He's getting a little bit stiff. Harper does not do it at all. She's seven, and she comes running and is fully embracing. My daughter at 11... In the last few months, it's happened now repetitively. I get her, especially if she's laying on the couch. I did it yesterday. I got on top, right? Get over her, and I pull her in tight and get as close as I can here, and I want to smell the neck and give her sugar on the cheek, and she's not in here, so she won't be embarrassed. And when she's doing that, it's like she's flinching, and, I'm, and my, my wife's trying to teach her right now, Marley, when, someone, when dad comes to hug you, I want you just to be fully calm and relaxed, and just hug. And she's getting to this flinching. And when I did that yesterday, you know what just hit me? That's exactly what happens to people that I pastor when God comes to love them. 
It's so hard for people just to allow God to love them. We flinch. God is a God of love. His love is not based on who you are or what you've done or what you you haven't done. It's based on who He is. He is love. So listen to me. The fear of God doesn't mean being afraid of God. I'm going to give Craig's simple man definition of the fear of God. Here it is. It's not being scared of God. It's being overwhelmed by God. All of God. This is the all of God. Listen to me. The greater your all of God, the more godly your perspective about everything going on in your life. Why should we be in all of God? Because listen, you're either going to be in all of the obstacles in front of you, or you're going to be in all of the one who is standing with you in front of those obstacles. You can only be in all of one of two. What does that mean? The greater your all of your obstacle, the harder it is to trust God. And this is true. When you're counseling people, if they have a hard time trusting God because they're more in all of the obstacle than the God who is standing next to them in the obstacle. The transcendence of God has to grow. The greater your all of God, the greater it is, easier it is to put your trust in God. So how do we grow our all of God? I'm going to give you three things and then we'll be done. Here's the first way we grow our all of God. We grow our all of God, number one, by meditating on his scope. I like that word scope. I tried to, I could not find any word in any language to accurately describe his amazing, immeasurable awesomeness. And so I just settled for the word scope. If you put your Bible or marker in Isaiah 40 a few moments ago, let's read a few verses and walk these bad boys out. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. By the way, as you turn there, if you don't have it open, verse, chapter 40 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because it's a, it's a calibrating chapter of Scripture on our great God and what our perspective of His greatness must be at all times. So let's just, let's just think about the transcendence of God for a moment. You ready? Isaiah 40 and verse 26. Look up into the heavens who created all the stars. He brings them out like an army. Speaking of God, one after another, after another, after another. Watch this. Calling each star by its name because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single star is missing. Do you see that? Not a single star is missing. Okay, I don't know if you, like me as a nerd, have ever tried to research how many stars there are in all the galaxies. There's a lot of discrepancy between different scientists, but there is a strong opinion there's about 125 billion galaxies like our own Milky Way galaxy. And in our galaxy, they say there's about anywhere from 100 billion stars to 200 billion stars. Depends on who you hear, but here's the point. It's a guesstimation because truthfully, the only one who knows how many stars stars there are down to the exact number of stars is the God who names every star by name. And he makes sure the Bible says they're always in their proper place. So watch this. Essentially, it's somewhere between 200 billion trillion stars. Now think about how great a number one trillion is. Can you imagine 200 billion trillion, yet he knows every one of those stars by names and he makes sure every star is in its place. Can I just say this morning, friends, I've come to encourage your soul because I get around people and everyone today is so in awe of artificial intelligence. They're all up in arms and worried about it rather than being so in awe of the creator's intelligent that we worship him for it. A few months ago, someone in this church came in here and said, Pastor Craig, do you think artificial intelligence is going to take over the earth? And I just said boldly, instantly, I said, no, Jesus is. And that's not a bumper sticker. It is a fact of God. Why is everyone so up in arms about artificial intelligence? 
sense. When you can tell me the name of every star, 200 billion trillion stars, I'll get impressed. But just because you can write some article on a little a pad that I don't have to write, that is not that much impressive to me. Like, why do we spend more time talking about, listen to this word, why do we spend time talking about artificial, which means fake intelligence, like a shiny object, like, woo, artificial. And when's the last time we opened up our Bible to Isaiah 40 and said, hey, look at my creator's intelligence, 200 trillion billion stars. He knows every one of them by name, and he keeps every one of them in place. That is intelligence. This is not intelligence. The transcendence of God should grow in your perspective. Y'all, I like it when God brags about like this about himself. Listen, I hear the Lord saying to me, Craig, I know all their names. Don't you ever another time look at me in, in my direction and tell me I'm not a God of the smallest detail. Don't you look this way anymore and think that I don't know what's going on in your heart or going on in your situation. I am not a man that I should lie or change. Now let's keep going. Isaiah 40, 22. God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. Figurative language. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. I'm going I'm to connect Psalm 139 and Isaiah 40 real quick. Psalm 139, David says, when I awaken, you're still there with me. In other words, David got a revelation that you stand over my bed every night of my life staring at me. Okay, y'all, let me ask you, when was the last time you laid down in your bed at night? And as you're trying to close your eyes, you look up at God straight at, through your ceiling. A God who sits above the circle of the earth and below, you're not even like a grasshopper to him. We're going to show you that in a second. When was the last time you were so undone by his immeasurable greatness that you slept more peacefully than any night prior? You know why most people don't sleep well? Most of us don't sleep well because we make our problems infinitely larger than our immeasurable God. Let's talk about God's hand for a second. This is going to get fun. This is the one of the ways I kind of recalibrate myself from time to time as I go in to be with the Lord. Isaiah 40, 12 says, God, watch this, look at it. God, God is saying this, who else has hold, held the oceans in his hand? All right, let's do a little test. Everybody take your left hand. Would you look at down at your palm? I want you to draw a little circle on your hand. Now look at how large that circle is. See that circle? Now I want you to tell you just for a moment how much water is on the earth. Because 71% of the earth's surface is actually water. God says, who else can hold 9,125 cubic miles of ocean in their hand? I'm sorry, Craig, remind me how big your problem is with your family. This is figurative language. Who else says he holds the ocean in his hands? You're about to see his hands even bigger than that because he says he measures off the heavens with his fingers. Next video. I want you to get your picture in your mind of the Milky Way galaxy and how large it is. Now get a picture of 125 billion galaxies and here's what your immeasurably great God says to you about himself. He said, I measure all of that like this. Two fingers. I'm sorry, Craig, how big is your problem with this measurement? 125 billion galaxies? What's going on at work? Oh, you, you, you don't think I know about your boss? Two fingers. How? How can I trust God, Pastor Craig? How can we not trust the God who measures with a hand so big that he measures 125 billion galaxies with two of his fingers? Craig, that, that's good. Oh, it, it gets better. 
Because let me tell you about God's other hand. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 15 says, God picks up the whole earth as if it were a grain of sand. All right, get a grain of sand in your mind's eye right now. How big must God's hand be? Imagine you get off of the planet and you were on a SpaceX rocket that actually didn't explode eight minutes into liftoff. And you get up there and you look back at the earth and see how immense it is. Now imagine the earth to be a grain of sand. How big must a finger be to lift up our planet like it was a grain of sand? I'm sorry, Craig, how heavy is the weight you're carrying in this season of your life? How much weight do you feel is on your shoulders? But his hand gets even better than that. Because Isaiah 41 and 13, God says to Israel, I hold you by the hand. So the God who holds the earth like a grain of sand is the God who refuses to ever let go of your hand. Can you even wrap your mind around this? Think about this. His hand is 125 billion galaxies. Craig's paraphrase of Isaiah 41 41 verse 3 is this. Craig, can I tell you, can I tell you what my favorite thing to do is? Tell me, Lord, well, the sun's at my right hand. I hold the sun with my right hand. Now imagine if God's holding my right hand, it's got to be with his left hand, right? Let me tell you, Craig, one of my favorite things to do. My favorite things to do is to hold the sun with my right hand and hold you with my left hand. And out of all the things a hand this big could do, my favorite thing to do is hold your hand. Can I really trust God? How can you not trust a God whose favorite thing to do is hold you by the hand, not just for all the days of life, but all of eternity? Second thing you want to do if you want to grow your trust of God, you've got to grow your awe by meditating on his deeds. Psalm 66 and 3, come on, Kobe, says to God, how awesome are your deeds. Your enemies cringe before your mighty power. I love this verse. It is the consistently, listen to me, miraculous deeds of God, which consistently remind the devil of his monumental demise. I want to preach right here for a moment, friends. I learned this so early on because I had a ferocious appetite for Scripture at 16 years old when I got born again. I I never forget because Passion of the Christ came out and I hadn't read through all of the, the Gospels at this point in my life. And I remember I started reading stories of God's miraculous power and faithfulness. I remember getting to Joshua and Jericho and reading about the walls of Jericho falling down just because of obedience. They walked and they blew a trumpet. I remember reading stories of God saved an entire nation of people through one woman, a prostitute named Rahab. I remember reading the story of Daniel having the faith to stand up against those that were opposing God's way so much that he's thrown into a den of lions and his miraculously immeasurable, powerful God would not allow the lions to even touch him. I remember for the first time, do you remember when you read the story of a young virgin woman being trusted by God? <laughs> I never forget this. Reading the Gospels, because I had not read the Gospels. I'd only heard the Gospels so told to me. I remember reading, how in the world would a virgin girl be given birth? And then she had to watch him grow for 33 years. And when Satan thought he had won by crucifying the Son of God, I remember getting to that point. This 16-year-old got to the point where the Son of God got up by the power of God on that third day. And I don't know about you, but I do not know how people say, can I trust God? And then don't get in the scriptures. How can your faith not rise when you meditate on the miraculous deeds of God? How can your faith not just go through the roof when you with open arms and open eyes and open heart read the miraculous powers and feet of God time and time again? And I would read the incredible testimonies of God's miraculous power and what he's always done. And every time I read a Bible story, it wasn't just a Bible story. 
authority. Every time I read a story about him measurably great our God is, the, 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 the thrust of my soul was, how can I not trust this God? How can I not? Here's the third thing you can do if you want to grow your all of God. You grow your all of God by meditating on his love. If you put a marker in Romans 8, let's read it and we'll be done. In my opinion, this is one of the greatest passages of Scripture on the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, starting at verse 35. Would you read it with me? Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Really great passage for this conversation. Or if we're persecuted, or if we're hungry, or we're destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death, as the Scriptures say, for your sake we're killed every day. We're being slaughtered every day like sheep. Verse 37, no, 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 it doesn't say that. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. And I'm convinced, Paul said, that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels, certainly not demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries for tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, no thing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I trust God? How can you not? I just spent the better part of 45 minutes telling you all the reasons you don't deserve and I don't deserve to be loved by God and yet not only does he love us, his love for us is eternal and and Paul says his love for us is perfect. Paul says this is what I've learned about the love of God. Everywhere I go the love of God beats me there. I mean just think about this for a moment. David said a similar thing. He said everywhere I go, God is there. God, every place I go. Why? Because God, you're obsessively in love with me. Here's the picture. Just get a picture. You're walking through your everyday life this week leading up to Christmas. You go to the grocery store. You know what got there first? Love of God. You make a a turn on the next aisle. You know what got to the next aisle before you got to the next aisle? Love of God. You go to the post office this week, and before you even lick that stamp, brother or sister, you know what got to the post office first? The unbridled love of God. You go to the gym acting like you're all that. You know what got to the gym first? The love of God met you there first. Listen, even when you make a choice to sin, not deserving it one bit, you know what's still there? The love of God, he goes there too. You want to grow your all of God? Spend Christmas week, every day of your life, just trying to wrap your mind around God's love for you. And your all will grow. And then when your all grows, your trust grows. Relational trust. Can, Can you trust God in the waiting room? How can you not trust God in the waiting room? One last illustration I'll show you ultimately what trusting in ourself looks like. Babe, would you hand me your Bible? Jacob, you look like a person that'll work. Come on, Jacob, put your hands together for Mr. Jacob Wood. Stand right over here, my friend. Let's just imagine for a moment. This is Jacob, by the way. Everybody know Jacob? Say, say hey, Jacob. Hi. All right, so imagine just for a moment this Bible represents everything you are begging God for in your life. Okay? So for the family you're praying for, the call of God in your life, maybe the future spouse you desire, the friends you're praying for, the mentors you're praying for, everything you're, you're praying to God for, imagine that it's represented in this Bible. And the scripture says you're oh so close. Okay, Just imagine this. The text says when we read the Bible that you and I, since we're fallen limited beings, we see through a glass dimly. We can't see clearly. It means you and I on this side of heaven will never 
be able to completely see what it is that God's doing. So let's illustrate this because all of you might be thinking, oh, I just walk right over there and get that thing that God says. This is the promises of God for me. Okay. But if you see through a glass dimly, let's illustrate it to the people today, what that actually looks like. Would you put the palms of your, your hands on both of your eyes? Yep. Just get it right in those eye sockets. Come on, a little tighter. All right. All right. I'm going to spin you around. Okay. Just spin with me for a moment. Okay, stop right there. All right. I want you as a congregation to go help him find all that he's praying to God for. Okay, go ahead. Stop. We all have people in our life who think they know how to get there, but they all see through a glass dimly lit too. So now you can't talk anymore. Because see, that's what the Bible says about you. You think you see, but you don't see. Now, I want you to go find that Bible without their help. Now, I won't let you walk off the stage, okay? I promise you. Okay? Yep. <laughs> Just like God, moving the cheese, right? All right, stop. Open your eyes. What? (laughs) That's what most of us look like trying to pursue the promises of God. Okay? Now watch this. This is why God doesn't ask us to walk by sight, but by faith. Okay? So let's do this. Put your hands back over your eyes. Because you're still on this side of heaven, you can only see through a glass dimly lit. Okay, I want you to turn left, Jacob. Turn left, Jacob. Paul's right there. I want you to take a step forward, Jacob. Jacob, take another step forward. Jacob, I want you to take another step forward. Jacob, I'm with you. Take another step forward. Jacob, would you take another step forward? Another step forward. Stop right there, Jacob. Would you open your eyes? Here's something I've been preparing for you from the foundation of the earth. You're creating in Christ Jesus to do good works and everything that you ever dream possible. What I would desire to do to your life, it's here in front of you. I give this to you as a precious gift. This is what God promises to us. Now, why does God make it where we have to walk by faith and not by sight? Because listen to me, here's what it does. It forces you to lean into him, and he's only interested in your lean. He don't really care about you doing the thing. He cares about you being in relationship with him. And he promises as the God of the universe to walk you every step of the journey. And you want to know the second reason why he makes you walk by faith and not by sight? Because if he let you walk by sight, when you got there and achieved it, guess who would take credit for it? You and I would. But when we can't see and yet God leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, who gets the glory? He gets the glory. Would y'all give my friend Jacob a hand? Great job, Jacob. The question isn't, can you trust God? The question is, will you trust God? Would you bow your heads with me all across the room? God, you are trustworthy.
a God ever so faithful, a God who delights showing mercy and grace. Lord, when you passed before Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord, you said that you are a God slow to anger, abounding in love and steadfastness, gracious and merciful and faithful. And even though our circumstances often try to communicate to us that in some way, somehow, we felt that you've been distant or absent, we know better. We know the truth of your word is that you're never, never could be near. That even when you seem most apparently absent, you're actually most powerfully present and you're wooing us, your precious children, because you promised that you would lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You're with me. I don't want to sit in the valley and whine. I want to keep walking through the valley. Knowing God, suffering comes first, then the glory is to follow. Lord, there may be people in here today that are on the mountaintop. May they have just such humility. Others may be feeling the valley. And I just pray that you'd use my words today to inject hope, inject fuel into their soul, adrenaline to say, yes, I'll continue to follow after you, Jesus. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. We're justified by faith. And so, Lord, this morning we come to you, this Christmas season, grow our all of you. May the transcendence of our God, who chose equality with God, not something to be held on to, but made himself as a servant, took on the form of a fetus, lived among us, God lived sinlessly, died on a cross, third day was raised again, spent 40 days on earth, and then ascended to the Father. Lord, and from that place, you're praying for us this morning. We just give you our trust in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you to stand with me all across the room. I don't want to complicate today's response. If the Lord's dealing with your heart today as it relates to growing your all by His scope, His love, His deeds, Maybe today you just want to refresh your commitment to the Lord. The altars are open for a few moments. Would you mind just coming? I'd love to pray with you this Christmas season. Some of our team members would love to pray with you. Our team's going to lead us in worship. Today, if you need Jesus, you need to trust Him. Maybe you've not trusted Him. Maybe you've trusted in yourself, and today would be the day of salvation for you. Listen, I don't want to belabor it and belong and, and coax and plead and beg. I'm just going to open these altars as this team begins to lead us. If you guys will just begin to lead us, just come. Feel free. If you want prayer this morning, just feel free to come. We'd love to worship, love to agree with you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.